Welcome to In the Oil Patch, presented by Shale Magazine, broadcasting today from Agreco Studios. Agreco, powering the Permian. In the Oil Patch is where, together, we explore topics that affect us all in oil, gas, business, and in your community. Every week, your host, Kim Bellotto, will visit with the movers and shakers in this fast-paced industry. You'll hear from industry experts, elected officials, and many more right here on In the Oil Patch. And welcome to In the Oil Patch Radio Show. I'm your host, Kim Bellotto, being joined by my co-host, David Blackman. And today we will be interviewing Dan Jurgen, who is the vice president of IHS Market and also the chairman of Sarah Week, who has just released a book, his latest book, which is called The New Map, Energy, Climate and the Clash of Nations. We will be reviewing the book with Dan here shortly. But before I bring him on, I wanted to talk to you quickly about our latest issue of Shell Magazine. You know, it is dedicated to women in the energy industry, the November-December issue, in which the cover is Myrtle Jones, Vice President of Halliburton. And she has an amazing story of determination, drive, a wonderful education, and a superstar when you read her story. I encourage you to go to shalemag.com, that's S-H-A-L-E-M-A-G.com, and read all about Myrtle and, of course, all the other interesting articles that are inside of the November-December issue of Shell Magazine. And speaking of Shell Magazine, I'd also like to encourage our listeners to contact us if you are interested in getting the new 2021 media kit. You know, it's the holidays, and we're all enjoying time with our family and friends But I would also like to mention that it's also a great opportunity for us to sit and back for a little bit and think about how we are going to start the new year off right for our businesses. If you are wanting to market to the oil and gas, I encourage you to visit shellmag.com and request a media kit in which you will find all of the editorial content that is scheduled for 2021. And it also will give you an opportunity to think about how you're going to advertise your company to the oil and gas sector or to the general public. For more information on a media kit or to learn more about Shell Magazine and how you can advertise with them, please go to shale, S-H-A-L-E-M-A-G dot com and request a media kit. And now, David, it's time for us to welcome on our guest, Daniel Jorgen, who is vice chairman of IHS Market as well as chairman of Sarah Week. Daniel, welcome to In the Oil Patch Radio Show. I'm delighted to be in the oil patch. Thank you. <laughs> well, you know, we were very excited to hear that you uh, wanted to interview um, with us pertaining to your new book, which is called The New Map, Energy, Climate, and the Clash of the Nations. But before we get started with talking about the book, uh, why you titled it, what you titled it, and, and other things inside the book, I want you to briefly tell me a little bit about IHS Market for our listeners and Sarah Week. Sarah Week is huge. We've, we've attended a couple of years in a row, but tell us, what is IHS Market? What's y'all's mission and goal? Yes. Well, IHS Market was a, obviously a combination of a number of companies. The one that I originally started was called Sierra Cambridge Energy Research Associates. Uh, it goes way back, but IHS was originally an upstream data company uh, that we merged into. Uh, and but it then has developed it developed an automotive area that it works on uh, 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 transportation uh, and a whole host of areas now is merged with market so we also have a big finance side so we have uh, about sixteen thousand employees uh, around uh, around the world uh, but uh, Texas and the world of shale is a very important concentration and we have eight hundred people in our Houston office 
and we work closely uh, with the uh, upstream industry in terms of analysis, data, software, uh, helping them uh, operate more efficiently. So uh, very deeply embedded. Sarah Week grew out of our Cambridge Energy, and it's, I think, regarded as a kind of premier global high-level thought leader energy conference and we bring about 6,000 people together every year in Houston, except in 2020 because of the pandemic, and uh, a whole host of CEOs, energy ministers, government officials. And I think people find it a fantastic way to understand what's happening in the industry, what's changing, what are the forces working on it, and what they should look forward in, in terms of their own strategy. And increasingly in recent years, it's also had a, a growing focus on technologies. We attend a lot of the conferences in Houston, and by far, Sarah Week is my favorite, and it, and it really is because it's done very well. It's well worth the investment, and the, the type of, you're bringing global leaders from all over to talk about what's happening in their area. It's a very dynamic conference, and so kudos to you. But well, thank you. If, if, if we had had it this year, we would have had people from 85 countries there. So, but of course, also a big focus, uh, I've been for the last X number of years, the shale industry, one year in about 2009, we actually gave a Lifetime Achievement Award to George P. Mitchell, mm-hmm. probably is more responsible for the shale industry right. than any other single individual. Covering your book, of course, we I was aware of him, and, but I didn't really realize the depth of him until I started to read your book, the new book we're covering today, The New Map. You're also a Pulitzer Prize winner as well as you are with Yale, your Yale President Council as well. So very, very accomplished. Uh, IHS Market is an amazing company. Sarah Week is an amazing conference to go to. But I want to jump into the book as well. The book is about a new global map that is being shaped by dramatic shifts in geopolitical and energy. It is also about where the map is taking us. Geopolitical focuses on the shifting balance and rising tensions among nations. Energy uh, reflects far-reaching alter interactions in global markets and flow driven by major parts of the remarkable change in the energy position in the United States and by the growing global role of renewables and the new politics of climate. That's in your intro. And in this book, it's labeled, you, you titled it, The New Map, Energy, Climate, and the Clash of Nations. David and I want to know first, why did you name the book The New Map? So the, the book that won the Pulitzer Prize was called The Prize, and then I yeah. did The Quest, and there was some thought that I should name this The Map, but I thought, no, it's really the new map. It's about how much has dramatically changed in the last 10 years, rearranging the energy terrain. And the shale revolution is right at the top of it, but there's also uh, the change in energy flows, energy trade, uh, the falling costs of renewables is another part of it. The Paris Climate Agreement is part of it. And so it's to say that there's really a new terrain and what the new map tries to do is provide a really a map through this, how to think about it, where we are, and what to expect. So that's how I came up with the name, the new map. In this book, one of your main points, uh, and, and by the way, it's an incredible read. You know, the prize is just the greatest book ever written about the oil and gas business. And this one is, is its equal, I think. But one of your main points is that the world's energy map is no longer an accident of geology but more of a policy choice determined by technological, economic, and political will. Can you expand on what you mean by that? That's a very interesting way, uh, Dave, to look at it. Uh, And the way you phrased it kind of has me thinking. That's right, because 
I think the existence of the shale resource and where it is uh, has, has changed uh, the sense of geological risk. But I still think geopolitics is a very important part of the overall picture. And yeah. you know, the US, even at the high point of production in February, which was 13 million barrels a day, that was still in a world of about 100 million barrels a day of consumption. Uh, but it, you know, other things have changed too. And there's one other thing I didn't mention in that list of changes is the change in the US-Chinese relationship. And yeah. I think that's the single most important geopolitical issue really that we are gonna face over the next couple of decades. And it's very significant, not only because actually turns out China's a major market for US shale exports, gas and oil, but also because it kind of changes the way kind of the global indus industries operate because it things are the kind of age of what was called globalization has become more, more fragmented. So I think there are all these kind of geopolitical uh, issues that tie together and that tie together right back to uh, the wellhead for the oil and gas industry. Yeah. I think your book um, really is an important book to read if you're new to the oil and gas industry or if you're very confused with what's happening in a geopolitical sense or just confused about this very complicated topic. And so I, I'm encouraging our listeners, it, it really, you, you did a wonderful job of starting almost from the very beginning of helping a listener understand how this got started, why did it get started, who were some of the main players in the very beginning. And it puts things very nicely together, which is a very hard thing to find in the oil and gas industry. Or if you're outside of the oil and gas industry and you're trying to get up to speed, you don't want to be that person sitting at the a dinner table and they get on the topic of, of oil and you're like uh, uh the deer in the headlight but we're getting ready to go to break when we come back i do want to cover the shell revolution with the 21st century and, and how that's shaping up you're listening to and the oil patch radio show and we'll be right back Welcome back to the Oil Patch Radio Show. I'm your host, Kim Bellotto. Today we have uh, my co-host, David Blackman, and we are interviewing Vice Chairman of IHS Market, Daniel Jurgen. Daniel, before the break, we were discussing the new map, your book that you've created. It's an amazing book for the beginner in oil and gas as well as the very seasoned person that is focusing on oil and gas. Let's switch gears and talk about the shell revolution of the 21st century. Obviously, Shell has rewritten the global energy map, if you will. But what do you think the impacts, will they continue in the future? And how do you think it fares with the war that's being conducted right now on anti-fossil fuels? And how does Shell play into this? I think first, let me say something, your initial comment. It is, I, I hope, and I think that the book tries to do what you said whether you know nothing about this industry. The editor who worked on it in New York is a 33-year-old millennial. And after he read it, he said, he said, nobody in my generation knows any of this, particularly if they live in New I'm York. I'm telling you, it's he true. Said, it's true. Yeah, he, it's said, true. I've got to, he said, I have to get everybody I know to read this book. Yes. And at the same time, I think if you're in the shale business, you better know what's happening in the rest of the world that's going to shape, uh, and that goes to your question, Kim, what's going to happen? So. Uh, I think that uh, obviously the shale industry was already, the shale revolution was already in need of a second revolution before COVID uh, and a revolution in its relationship with investors who 
want their money back. Uh, and it could no longer be growth at any cost. It had to be growth at what cost? And then came COVID really creating a crisis. And I think shale is still in that crisis. And I think as long as the virus is sitting on oil demand and sitting on the oil price, shale will, you know, it will be, you know, a, a challenging time for the industry. But I think at the end of the year, we'll probably see shale, well, overall U.S. production down uh, two, two and a half million barrels a day from what it was at that amazing 13 million barrels a day, making the U.S. by far the world's largest producer uh, in February. So, but then I think, and I think until, you know, until basically there's a vaccine, it will be challenging, but I think we'll see growth resume in the middle of next year or uh, third quarter of next year. And once we get out of COVID, we'll see a, a better price environment as economies start functioning again. And let me just give you one, one sign of that is China, which is now back to operating. Chinese oil demand in September, according to our IHS market colleagues in, in Beijing, was 300,000 barrels a day higher than it was a year ago, September. Yeah. So that does tell you there is life uh, after COVID. You know, along these same lines, uh, you just talked about China's demand returning. And I think that's that, that's something maybe the, the market has kind of discounted so far. What about uh, demand in other Pacific Rim countries and in India? Has that returned Oh yeah, uh, so as strongly just, as China? Yeah. So we just held our India Energy Forum, which is based upon this by Sirawi. And it was very interesting hearing the senior Indians there say that India, though still struggling with COVID, their oil demand in September was higher than a year ago as yeah. well. And of course, India is the other big growth market mm -hmm. for world oil. And so there's very intense interest in terms of what happens uh, in India. And India has become a significant customer for U.S. oil and gas exports. Are they open for business? They're not shut down? Is that what the demand is there for? Or how are, well, where's the demand coming yeah, from? Yeah, I think it means that it means that trucks are moving, that uh, commerce is, is continuing, airplanes are flying, all of that is still happening. Uh, even though people are still at home, that they, they haven't opened up like China where everybody's gone back to work at our office in Beijing. Everybody's there and they're meeting with, uh, with uh, companies as well. As we get ready for break, Daniel, I guess my question is, is you mentioned you have an office in Beijing and of course you're very heavily involved in Houston. How is the the relationship, if you will, between North America producers and other markets, India, uh, China, Asia, different market areas? Is everybody still dealing with this in a in a way that uh, everyone's getting along or are you starting to, are, are we sensing some, some troubled waters? Well, I think uh, troubled waters is a good phrase and I'll come back to that. I think uh, in terms of the LNG market, it's, you know, over last several weeks, it's strengthened demand is, is up and, and prices are up, which is, I think, you know, is very different from the way it looked two months ago. Markets do change. But troubled waters is a good phrase because one of the areas I spend time talking about in the book is this area that may seem far away, the South China Sea. But it's this most important waterway in the world in economic terms because one third of world trade passes through it as much oil passes through it every day as passes out of the Persian Gulf. Uh, so it's really important. But uh, the U.S. and China and the neighboring countries in China are at odds over China's claim to that body of right. water. Right. And it's very important to China 
strategically because that's where a lot of their oil flows through that. And that gets to their concerns about the U.S. Navy if there's a crisis over Taiwan. So as I say these things, you see how interconnected uh, mm -hmm. it is. And that's one of the factors that has led to this growing tension between China, which is very different from what it was than five years ago. And it matters to the U.S. oil and gas industry first because it's, it's you know, it's a big growth market. 75% of China's oil is imported and a lot of U.S. LNG is headed for there or hope to be headed for there because it's going to be the largest LNG market. Uh, but it also matters because of the kind of large, getting caught up in the trade issues and a kind of larger tension between the United States and China uh, will affect any company that wants to operate uh, globally, I think. Well, Daniel, we're, we're getting ready for break, but I'm sensing a new book, another book for you, <laughs> discussing all of these topics. We're going to go to break. You're listening to an Old Patch Radio Show, and we'll be right back. Welcome back to the Oil Patch Radio Show. I'm David Blackman with my host, Kim Bellotto. We're here today with Daniel Jurgen, one of the great writers about energy and oil and gas industry, also the vice chairman of IHS Market, one of the great consulting firms to, to the energy business and other, other businesses. Um, Daniel, I wanted to cycle back. We, we, we want to continue talking about our conversation about China and it's important. I also wanted to, to cycle back uh, to the shale revolution and and give you a chance to comment on how important you believe uh the shale industry is you know not just to the energy picture but all the good things it does with our economy and in our society at large david i say at the first chapter if we want to get to the beginning of the shale revolution we got to get on the highway out of dallas and uh, head uh, yeah. to the uh, town of uh, honder and then dish texas which you yep. well and it's a remarkable story, just that it took, no one believed that it was possible. And it took 18 years to get the breakthrough. And I, again and again in the book, I come to those decisive events that make a difference. The well was, they were going to give up after 18 years. George Mitchell's dream just wasn't working. And then somebody goes to a baseball game in Dallas and meets somebody else. And they say, well, there's this other thing that becomes known as slick water fracking. It's working over mm -hmm. there and different, try it and it works. And, and then it starts going and this is 1998. It still takes 2003 to prove that it actually works with horizontal drilling. And even when it happens, it's not taken very seriously. And people think, oh, that's, it's a bubble, it's an independent. I have this quote uh, from uh, an OPEC person and saying, it's just a bubble, it's gonna disappear. No, you know, uh, right. people just don't believe it. And then it turns out to be a phenomenal change. And I think that what strikes me and I find frustrating is the full impact of shale is not understood. It can be measured in oil production, but it's also measured in millions of jobs. It's measured in the manufacturing states in the United States, creating uh, a market for industrial goods. It becomes a major source of fixed business investment in the United States. It contributes to revenues. It brings down our balance of pay, uh, trade deficit. It leads to over $200 billion of investment in new uh, uh, factories in the United States. 
it makes the U.S. an exporter of, 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 the, of chemicals instead of an importer. Uh, and it becomes yeah. a whole new factor in U.S. foreign policy, giving the U.S. flexibility it doesn't have. And on top of that, it brings energy security. And by the way, it achieves what nine presidents had been calling for <laughs> since the early 1970s, which is energy independence for the United States. Yeah. And this is what it gave us. And it's just frustrating that if you go on the East Coast, you talk to people, they don't understand any of how important and what an impact and what a revolution this has been and what a positive it's been for the United States. You know, we talked about the importance of China on this, but there's also, Daniel, I talk about oil and gas. I want to learn about oil and gas. I've never worked a day in oil and gas. So for somebody like me, your book really hit home. But I have a missing piece here, which is what you're discussing. Why is it that people don't put together that rather we're energy independent, helps us to not enter into unnecessary wars in countries because of energy demands or because of energy. This has given us that vehicle to make us stronger, more nationally secured, and yet it seems as though we're on this path for all kinds of renewables, which is good. We should be environmentalists at the end of the day. But the problem for me, though, is that rather we ship it across the world to an India or, or somewhere else, they're not going to probably take the environment in to consideration as much as we would. And I guess we're going to get ready for break, but I want to understand or I want your opinion on why is it that the United States is so hell-bent, if you will, on trying to figure out how to stop fossil fuels and, of course, the Shell Revolution. Is this really a benefit to the United States or is this kind of, to me, undermining the whole thing that makes us stronger as a country? But, but hold on, we're going to take a quick break. You're listening to an old Patch Radio show, and we'll be right back. And we're back. You're listening to and the Old Patch Radio Show. I'm Kim Bellotto, your host, along with my co-host David Blackman, the editor of Shell Magazine. And we are interviewing Daniel Jorgen, vice chairman of IHS Market, as well as chairman of Sarah Week. Daniel, before the break, I kind of got a little long-winded in trying to understand why does there seem to be such an effort to this anti-fossil fuel? And does that leave us more vulnerable to being less energy independent and more reliant on other countries? Why do you think this is happening that that we're on this path i have puzzled over the question as to why is there this animosity to this great achievement which nine u.s presidents were in favor of which is energy independence and clearly renewables are going to have a growing role mm-hmm. uh, the cost of renewables have come down like but wind and solar by the way don't really replace oil because uh, you don't put wind and solar into your automobile engine uh, i think it's uh partly There was a pretty strong campaign against shale right at the beginning uh, with movies and people believing that there are these huge environmental problems. People don't understand that the oil and gas industry is a pretty highly regulated industry. And uh, they think it's kind of just the Wild West and people just go and punch holes in the ground. And there's a pretty strong campaign against it, uh, suggesting that there are all these environmental problems. And I, but as I hear people talking about banning fracking, it is a slogan. They don't really know what it means. But you know what a ban f- banning fracking is, is really an import more oil policy 
because we have 280 million cars in the United States and virtually all of them run on gasoline. And if we don't produce it, it will be produced somewhere else. And the people who would like to, who would also be very supportive of a ban fracking movement uh, in the United States are some of the major oil exporters. And in fact, in the new map, I cite an example where Venezuela actually raised the question about supporting an anti-fracking uh, uh, and anti-shale movement in the United States. And I think other producers would agree with that. Uh, again, in the new map, I talk about uh, one of the most prominent Russians who uh, said, why do we give up market share to the United States? So I think it's not very well thought out and it's just not looking at the numbers uh, and uh, and not looking, by the way, at all the other things that uh, oil and natural gas are used for, uh, whether it's a hospital operating room, whether it's the mask that you wear because of COVID, uh, whether it's um, uh, uh, the plastic that goes into an electric car, or even uh, what goes into your medicines that people take. Uh, and it's just not, uh, understood and uh, you know in fact oil and gas in terms of their products plastics have been a very important part of uh, fighting COVID and I don't think that's very well recognized either. Well and talking about numbers uh, you talking about wind and solar and the numbers related to that I you know one of the things we talk about a lot on our show is is that they're great wind and solar are great and they have a role to play in our energy picture but they're not really you have to deal with them from a reality standpoint. And I, and I kind well, of sense that a, same think, kind of David, thinking David, in your if book. I can jump in, yeah. if I can jump in, it's a scale question. Right. Uh, the United States gets 80% of its energy from oil, gas, and coal today. About 4% of energy from, uh, or a little less than 4% from uh, wind and solar. And that, that disparity, which I think is what you're getting at, is just yeah. not well recognized. Well, it's not, and and people just seem to have a fantasy uh, in their minds that, that that you can replace all the natural gas and coal with solar panels and windmills. And anyway, I I, I appreciated your, your your the parts of your book about that for I those reasons. To give people a framework and a scale. Yes, there could be utilities are going to invest a lot more in wind and solar, uh, but it's, what I really conclude at the end of it is that we're going to have a mixed energy system. And, uh, and I actually think I have a sentence in the book. In fact, I'm pretty sure I have a sentence in the book saying, I know some people don't want to hear this. But oil and gas are going to be around for a long time. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, we, we, we got on the topic of, of China, uh, and I want to get back on that topic because China is, is definitely, uh, you know, they have huge energy demands on the world right now. And your book points out, you know, that they are one of the largest energy consumers on the planet. In fact, um, talk a little bit about some of the moves that China is making in recent years to secure their own energy supply for the future. China uh, was aimed to be energy self-sufficient, and it was for many years. In the early 1990s, as they started to grow, they started to import oil. They now import 75% of their oil. Uh, they are the second largest consumer of uh, oil in the world. Uh, the largest consumer of energy in the world, actually. And uh, they worry about that dependence. They worry about it in terms of the South China Sea. Uh, they worry about it in terms of dependence on the Middle East. Uh, and uh, so they have tried to diversify their energy supplies. 
Uh, and that's become a very important element in their relationship with Russia, mm -hmm. which is a kind of strategic relationship that has gotten stronger and stronger as uh, in opposition to the United States. And at the same time, uh, a relationship that was once based on Marx and Lenin has a big basis now in oil and gas because Russia is a big supplier now of energy to uh, China. China has its Belt and Road strategy, which is its $1.4 trillion plan to connect Central Asia, South Asia, uh, Europe, Africa, Middle East to the Chinese economy. Uh, and uh, uh, energy and the acquisition of energy and securing energy is a very important part of it. But it also figures in US-Chinese relations because one way that the Chinese can bring down the trade balance is by uh, importing oil and gas from the United States. And that was part of the trade deal that was mm -hmm. negotiated at the end of uh, 2019 uh, with that purpose. There are pretty big numbers in there, which are going to be hard to achieve. But for China, one way to kind of at least try and smooth out the trade relationship with the United States is by importing more energy. It's very important to China, the whole sort of energy security issue. And they are we're kind of where we were 12, 14 years ago, when we imported 60% of our oil, now they import 75%. And um, they see it very much in a geopolitical context, including in a complicated way with the United States. You know, Daniel, there have been reports that have come up that uh, China is getting very uh, chummy with Russia, and we should be paying attention to that. When we get back from break, I want to try to get on this net zero uh, by 2050. You can explain that to us. You're listening to an Oil Patch Radio Show. We'll be right back. And we're back. You're listening to In the Oil Patch Radio Show. I'm your host, Kim Bellotto, joined by my co-host, David Blackman, the editor of Shell Magazine. And we're interviewing Daniel Jurgen, vice chairman of IHS Market and chairman of Sarah Week. David, I know you have a question about uh, net zero. Go right yes, ahead. of course, Daniel, you know, energy and climate are, you know, they're inextricably linked uh, and have been for a long time and always will be. And so we see all this talk in, in and commitments being made to to like in the EU, uh, BP has made its own commitment. Some other uh, big corporations are doing the same thing about being net zero on carbon by 2050. And I guess my question, you, you, I know you talk about it in your book. Is that attainable? And what exactly does it mean, you know, just for for the, the listener on the street, what exactly does net zero by 2050 even mean? I think anybody who's in the energy business needs to understand what the nature of the discussion is right now. And I really recommend those later chapters in the new map that kind of lay it out. Net zero carbon uh, is a result of the uh, Paris climate agreement of uh, 2015 that uh, 195 nations signed onto, which uh, says you're going to try and keep temperatures rising no more than two degrees above pre-industrial or one and a half degree. And the kind of it's become the accepted benchmark or formula that that means net zero carbon by 2050. What does that mean? It means that you, that you or a company or a country are not going to put more you're going to, whatever CO2 you put in the atmosphere, you're going to balance out, because it's the word net, not just 
not just zero right. carbon, which some in Congress would like to have, the new Green Deal or the Green New Deal. But um, so it means if you, for instance, we now have cargoes of sort of net zero carbon LNG shipments, which means that somebody shipping LNG, they buy carbon offsets, which might mean trees or uh, doing something else. And this idea of net zero carbon is uh, requires real development of what's called carbon capture, if that's going to be a goal and if it's going to be a, a, a attained. And, um, you know, that technology isn't there, but it, that really needs a lot of work. So governments have adopting it. The European Union has adopted it. Japan has more or less adopted it. Uh, financial investors are, are adopting it. And I think that's a big issue and concern for any energy company because of the demands on it. And some of the energy companies, particularly the European ones, are adopting it because they live in a different environment than American companies do. Right. Feel different pressures. So for a, company, a country like China, which gets 60% of its energy from coal, how does a country like China achieve that? Well, yeah, so China has now said that they're ending aiming for that, but they're aiming for it in 2060. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, I think part of that was actually was done at the UN. I think part of that was kind of part of the competition with the United States at the UN, because China wants to say, we're the leader of globalization. The US has left that behind and is, is a unilateral country. Uh, but uh, it's also for China, it's about not only climate, but it's about urban pollution, which is a huge problem. It's a social problem, it's a health problem, it's a political problem. and China has um, actually half of the wind in the world, half the solar in the world is in China. But I just checked this uh, yesterday. Uh, China is also building five new coal-fired plants uh, a month, uh, bringing them into operation. Still, So I think that suggests that some of these goals are going to be hard to uh, attain. And when you just look at the numbers, I think oil and gas are going to continue to be an important part of the energy mix for a very long time. Uh, let's talk quickly about OPEC, because it's always a, a question, the future of the cartel and its partners, OPEC plus the deal. We recently was at, were asked a question about um, Saudi Arabia and their entrance into or possibly looking at ethanol. Just your opinion. Is Saudi Arabia also feeling pressure on uh, on the environment as well? Saudi Arabia is... Uh is seeing the same thing that's happening in the rest of the world. And they're talking about a circular carbon economy, which would have a lot of carbon capture in it and technology. And they're also saying, you know, per barrel, our carbon footprint in terms of the production process is about the lowest in the world because their volumes are so high and number of wells is, is they don't have, you know, they, they have very large wells. Uh, but I think uh, I find that all, uh, the energy, major energy producers now, including the national oil companies and Saudi Aramco, but did do an IPO, are very much also grappling with it. And Saudi Aramco, along with 12 other companies, belongs to what's called the uh, OGCI, which is the Oil and Gas Climate Initiative, which is an effort by the companies, major companies, to say, we're engaged in this, and in particular, putting money into R&D to address uh, carbon issues and carbon capture. So I think this is on the agenda of uh, all the major companies around the world and saying, how do, we, uh, how do we go forward in this and how do we deal with this? 
and uh, it's going to be part of the reality for the oil and gas business going forward uh, to deal with it. And very important for companies that uh, have uh, investors that uh, represent on the stock market. Mm-hmm. Because investors the ESG. Similar questions. Right, ESG. Well, before we go, I do want to tell our listeners where to get your book. But before I do that, you know, the book has been reviewed by New York Times. Bill Gates says a fascinating book, a real contribution. The Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, Economist, Financial Times, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, uh, San Francisco Examiner, Chicago Tribune. You, this is an amazing book, Daniel, and our listeners should go and get their copy. And it can be found, what, on Amazon, right? The, the yeah, new map? Yeah, certainly. It, it can be found very easily on Amazon or Barnes & Noble or at your you know, at your local bookstore if they haven't sold out. And, um, but it's very readily accessible. There's even uh, 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 audible version, but I, I recommend the hardcover because among other things, we haven't talked about it, the photographs in the book, I think right. are terrific and are really tell a story and uh, dramatize and, you know, bring this whole story of uh, shale right up to questions of energy transition, bring it all into very sharp visual focus. So uh, I would say Amazon is obviously one place to start. The new map, Daniel Jurgen, and you can put on there, Kim with Shell and David with Shell also say this is an amazing book. But it is truly it, amazing. It really does help bring everything into, a, you know, an easy to understand format. And I'd also like to just ask you before we leave, Sarah 2021, Sarah Week, will we see it? Yes, we will see a Sarah Week. The question is, will it be in person or will it be virtual? We just did our India Energy Forum by Sarah Week virtually. I think given where we are with vaccines, it's more likely to be primarily virtual, but uh, we're going to monitor the situation and are very close contact with the city of Houston talking about what we can do. Clearly, we'll be there for 2022, but we would love to be there for 2021 because this industry is always changing and it's so important yeah. for people to get together and share perspectives. Very good. Well, Daniel, on behalf of David Blacken and myself, thank you so much for letting us catch up with you and talk a little bit about your new book, The New Map. Go grab your copy on Amazon.com. Once again, thank you for joining us on In the Oil Patch Radio Show. And thank you, Kim and David, very much. Very glad to be with you and have a chance to talk about this and share these ideas with your listeners. In the Oil Patch is where, together, we explore topics that affect us all in oil, gas, business, and in your community. Every week, your host, Kim Bilotto, will visit with the movers and shakers in this fast-paced industry. You'll hear from industry experts, elected officials, and many more right here on In the Oil Patch.